God's going to do something special. I, I think we're going to be doing something different, at least, than all the other studies we've had. Although we're going to start in 2 Timothy, we really are going to almost, either you're just going to need to take notes, you're just going to need to listen to me read, or you're going to be really fast flipping through the scriptures. Okay? Because we're going to be going to a lot of different places. And uh, we'll share with you in a, in a second why I decided to do that. But let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing that you are king, recognizing you're our authority. And yet, Lord, when we say that, it's really hard to be able to bow down to you in every area. We hear your word. We understand what you say to us. And sometimes you even shout. And we are deaf. We go our own way. We do our own thing. We get in the muck. And we call your name. And you rescue us. We look all the way through the scripture. The pattern is exactly the same. And yet you pursue us. You love us. And if only we would keep our part of the bargain. If only we would remember what your word has to say and obey it with all of our hearts. Things would be so different. We ask you, God, to teach us tonight. We ask you to break away any of the chains that have bound us. Any of the fears that we have. Lord, we know that you want the best for us. And our enemy has worked so very, very hard in deceiving us. Um, if that weren't the case, I, I, we, we'd be all on the train. We'd be all bound down. We'd, we'd be all focused on you every moment of the day. And we're not. So Lord, somehow we're missing it. All of us, we're missing it. Um, open our eyes tonight. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in 2 Timothy, and for those that again have been with us, uh, this introduction might be a little bit old, but I actually never get tired of talking about it. Paul is ready to die. He is literally weeks or maybe months away before he's going to meet his Lord. He has lived a very unique life. In the very beginning of his life, he got great pleasure in killing Christians thinking he was obeying God. He had great pleasure in sitting at Gamaliel's feet, of having one of the best educations, of knowing the scriptures, of being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. If people would look at Saul at that time, <laughs> he, he would stick right up. He, he would be the men above men, or men of men. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. Everything came into light for him. Within days, he was literally preaching about the man that he actually wanted to destroy. In spite of his scenario, in spite of his situation, in spite of his journey, he had been in prison. He had started multiple churches. He had relationships now all over Asia Minor. He had friends just about everywhere. Well, on this imprisonment, it was a lousy one. It was the dungeon of dungeons. It was not house arrest. It was being chained in a dark place, uh, having human waste all over, hardly able to see. 
but he was able to jot down his thoughts. This elderly statesman was writing to his successor. Paul was handing the baton off to a discouraged pastor. And we know that he was discouraged because of the things that the Apostle Paul was drilling into Timothy. He knew he was struggling. He knew that the church wasn't going as well as he had hoped. He knew that there are people that weren't falling in love with God with all their hearts. And I don't know if he was just wavering or if he was on his downward descent, but Paul got a hold of him with his words. He was shepherding a church that was compromising. It was a church that used to be strong. It was a church that knew more doctrine and applied more things than any other church that Paul was associated with. This was a strong church. But for some reason it got entangled in a culture. And it forgot some really important things. So Paul was writing to a discouraged pastor who was shepherding a compromising church with these words. And so Paul reminded Timothy. In fact, what I would like to say is, the older you get, and we do have a few gray hairs in here, just a few, okay? But the older you get, the more you're going to see your role as an encourager, as someone to pump other people's tires, as someone to be able to encourage them to stay the course. Because, to be quite honest, as you look at some of these things, you wonder. You're tired. Your kids aren't always cooperating. The job wasn't as easy as it was yesterday. You have more aches and pains. You don't sleep at night. You're wondering why all these pressures are going on. And you're going like, whoa. I mean, back when I was 30, I never thought like this. You know, back when I was 50, I never thought like this. Back when I was 60, I never thought like this. i got to stop there. But, but the truth is, is that God has a task for every one of us. And the older you get, it's more of taking those younger. And younger might just be 59-year-olds. All right? And encouraging them in their path and in their relationship with God. Paul reminded Timothy that he was a gift, that he was so grateful to God for him. Paul reminded him that he had great faith. At times it wavers, but I remember when you were small, he talked to Timothy, I remember that faith. I remember that faith of your mother, and I remember that faith of your grandmother, and you have that faith. And I want to remind you, don't lose that faith. So here it is, the, the prisoner. Reminding, and you can read through the first part of Second Timothy, you'll see this. He says, I want to remind you that you're gifted. I want to remind you that God gave you things in order to invest in others, and to build the church, and to equip the church. And I want to remind you that you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings you unbelievable discernment and unbelievable power. Do you know that you have the Holy Spirit, Timothy? And he says, I want you to know you have power and authority. So... In light of all these things, I don't want you to be ashamed of me, even though I'm in prison, or ashamed of the gospel. You see, the good news is this transforming power 
in every one of our lives. Don't be ashamed of that. That is what's going to change lives. That is what's going to make a difference in people. Don't run from hard times, Timothy, Paul says. And again, he's in prison. Okay. He's recognized that. But he's saying, things are going to be tough in ministry, in life. You follow me, things are not going to always go well. Timothy, I want you to live a holy life. And we talked about holy isn't some kind of um, monastic thing. It's, it's really being clean. It's being sensitive to sin in your life so that immediately when you sin, when you covet, when you lie, when you lust, whatever the sin is, is that God convicts you of this. The Holy Spirit brings it to mind and you confess your sin so that you're listening to God and walking with God. And He's saying, hey, I want you to live a holy life. Then He said, I want you to guard the truth. I want you to make sure you understand what God's Word is and I want you to stand there like a sentry and be able to take care of something so very, very valuable. Alright? I want you to be strong in the grace of God. If anybody, all the way through the years, talked about God's grace, was amazed that he had this position, was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he calls himself the greatest of all sinners. He probably was the greatest of all sinners because it was inspired, as we will find out today. But the truth is, is that because he knew he was the greatest of all offenders, that the privileges he had, he never, never wore out. If you ever get to a place where you're not overwhelmed with God's grace, that is a huge, huge caution sign. I'd stop everything that you're doing and just say, hey, why is it that I'm so casual about the cross? Why is it that I'm so flippant about what Jesus did for me? Why is it that I, you know, I don't even pray anymore because, you know what, I just need to pray. I can go into the king's prayer. When have we lost the awe of all this? We get to do all this. It's amazing. Then he said, please, be a faithful servant. You are a servant. You are not the king. You are a servant. He puts all this in perspective. And then Paul, right before we got into our, our, our text for today, he says, I want you to be like me. We have lived together. You have watched me. You saw me teach. You saw my faith. You saw how patient I was. You saw how I loved others. And really, what you saw is that I have endured. Would you be like me? You have seen it. You've seen the joy in my heart. You've recognized all the people whose lives have been transformed because we have the opportunity to be able to share good news. He said, there's nothing like it. Isn't that something a man at the end of his life, in prison, ready to be killed, looking back and say, hey, I want you to know, I am happier now than I've ever been. I'm so grateful for what God has done. And now I'm reminding you, I'm not going to be around long, I'm reminding you, please, would you hear me, Timothy? Now turn your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. And we're going to start at verses 16 and 17. 
and probably not get through them tonight. So I'm warning you. Paul says this, all scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed, and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses the scriptures to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You see, the word of God is important. And it should be a priority. And it should be taught. And I guarantee everyone sitting here tonight, okay, first of all, you're going to spend an hour into, in a Bible study. Okay? So either you are really deceived or you do think God's Word is somewhat important. I get that. But if I needed to have you sign on the dotted line, if there was a gunman here, if whatever scenario you want to put, and say, hey, do you believe that this is God's inspired holy Word? My guess is the majority of you, if not all of you, would say, yeah, no, no problem. This is God's letter to me. This is something that God said, I want you to understand Rick Wager. And you put your own name in. We would all say that. But realistically, whether it's a cultural thing, whether it's a casual thing, whether it's because we have... 15 or 20 or 30 copies of this at home. Or now we have 6, 8, 10 versions on our phones or iPads. Or even capable, once we're on the web, just to get any, any version, any language of God's Word at any time. Anyway. So maybe even just having it familiar, having it available. We can go online. We can get a podcast any moment. All right. We can put a CD in our uh, a CD into our car. Now most of us don't have that anymore. Pretty sure you don't have cassettes anymore or eight tracks. <laughs> ah, the old eight tracks days. I remember. I don't know where I'm going at this moment, but I remember my dad's secretary Roberta had an old cutlass. And I remember getting in her car and for the very first time seeing this eight-track player. Dude, this was so cool. Punch that baby in and it would just like, and you hear, next song. I don't know what that meant, but it was doing something, you know, and it was very loud. Um, we never got messages on eight-tracks. Just really cool music. All I'm saying is this, is that I think God has a way to give us unbelievable message from himself. And what I'd like to do is share with you, over these last <coughs> probably three months, well let me just say this to you first of all, most of you know I, I read, I have, a, I have a practice where I read through the scriptures every year. And we even have a guys group that we meet together and we meet every week and talk about what parts we're, we're learning and what God's doing in our lives and that type of thing. So there's even some accountability. But one of the, the fun things I do is every year I get a brand new Bible. 
And every year I, I start reading through it, and every year I mark it. Okay. And I have a very unique marking system. Uh, it really doesn't mean anything, to be quite honest. Yellow means it's really important. Anything I underline with any other color just means it's kind of cool. Okay. Um, but the bottom line is, is that as I look at the scripture, one of the first questions I get is, Rick, doesn't that ever get old? Or, how come you got this out of this text? Or, you just fill in the blank. All I can say is this, either I'm a little slow and dense, and after this many years, I still don't get it. Or, the Holy Spirit has a tendency to open my eyes to new and fresh things every single day. Well, one of the things over the last, over the last three months, and all I did was go through my Bible readings over the last three months and look at the yellow parts, okay? And any time it talked about the Word of God, I wrote this down. And actually, I put it on your sheet. We handed a sheet of paper out because I'm going to go through these texts like crazy. And every one of these texts were shouting to me. All right? Now, it doesn't mean, again, that I hit everything because in preparation for this, what I literally did, I did not go to a concordance, I did not go to Google, I did not. I went through my Bible and just looked at all the highlight stuff and said, Whoa, this was good. Whoa, this was good. I am so grateful for this text. Thank you for teaching me this. And what I'd like to do is actually start there. And I'd like you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Now, to be quite honest, I think every one of the, and, and again, you may not even know where these are, please don't feel badly, go to the index, um, find out where, where Ezra is, find the page number and so on, and, and you'll get it. But every one of these texts probably deserve a little bit of explanation or background. Because whenever you open up the scriptures, remember, you really have a two-step process whenever you read something. Okay? If you don't, you get in trouble. But the first question to ask is, what does this mean to the original hearers? The second question you ask, which is really important to ask it second, is what does this mean to me? All right? I was just recently, again, chatting with a young man, and I was just asking him, hey, what's God teaching you? How is God encouraging you? And honestly, he shared with me a text um, and it's one of the few times in my life I did not have the courage to even say, you are kidding me. <laughs> How did you get this? Where? I mean, he was really, I'll just say this, he was really encouraged. He was really excited. He was sharing with me just some great truths, but it was not from these verses that he was sharing from me. Okay? And so I am going to go back at another time, and kind of share with them how to look at God's Word a little bit more accurately. But the truth is this, is that if we can just put some of these pieces together, we understand a little bit of God's timeline. We understand, again, a little bit of where all this Bible fits in. You don't have to go to seminary. You really don't. But if you can answer some basic questions, like what was happening when this was written? Like, what people was this written to? 
Like, what were the circumstances? i got to tell you that 2 Timothy will jump out to you knowing that Paul was in such unbelievably ugly circumstances and he was just about to die. I guarantee it. It changes everything that you read in 2 Timothy, just understanding that one thing. So anyway, we're going back to Ezra. And to put this in perspective, Ezra and Nehemiah are basically contemporaries. Okay? Remember, the Bible isn't written chronologically, which will drive some of you guys crazy. Alright? This is just about the last things that were written in the Old Testament. And this is way in the beginning of the Old Testament. So it doesn't make sense there. But Ezra was a scribe, okay? And Nehemiah really was a cupbearer, which we're going to talk to, or talk about in a second. But in Ezra, what happened is that God did an amazing movement. And, and again, to put this in perspective, the children of Israel rebelled. There was a time of kings, okay, we had Saul, starting off, we had David, we had Solomon, and then after that we had a bunch of kings that were ruling, the majority of them foul balls, only three kings in over 400 years that basically followed God, okay? So God was patient and kind with the children of Israel. And what happened, there were ten tribes, and there were Two tribes. The ten tribes are basically called Israel. The two tribes are basically called Judah. Well, the ten tribes were even more evil than the two tribes of Judah. And what happened, because the ten tribes were more evil, they eventually got deported to Assyria. And as a result of that, they were actually considered the ten lost tribes. No one even knows where the heck they are at this moment. So the Jews and the promises of God and the covenants of God really went to these two tribes of what we would call Judah. Now they were also exceptionally evil. And God eventually allowed Babylon to come in. This was the whole Nebuchadnezzar time, remember? This was with Daniel. He was one of the times that they were deported. So we all remember those stories right there. But then for 70 years, they were really under captivity. Now after this, okay, God began to work. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah come. First of all, the temples run down. It's beat up because everyone was deported. And it was basically ransacked, okay? Every bit of valuable types of, of stones and metals or whatever, it was all taken away. So what happened is that basically Ezra had on his heart to rebuild the temple. And God put on an evil king's heart to help him rebuild the temple, which is actually kind of a fun story, okay? But in chapter 7, if you would look, starting at chapter 9... Ezra is kind of in the middle of his book. He's kind of sharing some things. But this is what he writes. The gracious hand of God was on Ezra. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord. And let me just say this. I'm not going to give it to you every time. But we look when it says the law, that is the scriptures. And the law to us, especially in America, we get a little bit upset because literally we think, oh, the law, like, oh, this is a bad thing, like it's very restrictive. The truth is, 
it is restrictive at times. But it's restrictive because God loves us and knows what's best for us. Okay? So the law of God can be translated the scriptures or the principle or, or God's word. Any one of those things. But listen, God's gracious hand was on Ezra because he determined, and I think that's absolutely important to circle, underline in your Bibles, to study, which is good, and obey the law of the Lord, and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. Wow. So do you want to know how to get God's gracious hand upon you? It's real simple. Okay? This is not rocket science. The scriptures say, take time to study, listen or obey, and then teach what you learn to others. This is what parents do. Now some of you, you know, your kids don't live in your house anymore. I get it. Okay? You're a little bit older now. Alright? But the truth is this. That's all parents do. Every single day. Alright? They teach kids principles. Now they can teach them their principles or they can teach them God's principles. And they can help people obey what God has to say. But here it is. God's gracious hand was on Ezra because he studied, obeyed, and taught. I want to start there. Now go to chapter 9. And this gets a little dicey, but it's, you're going to understand in a second. Look at verses 3 four, and five. What happened is that Ezra saw a little bit of a revival. There were things that were happening. God's people were coming back. Remember, they were living in Babylon. They were living in all these foreign countries. But God's principles were still there. And God said very clearly, I don't want you to intermarry. It has nothing to do because the foreign girls are better looking or the foreign girls are more corrupt or the foreign girl. Basically what God was saying is that you are a separate people. And if you enter a relationship with these foreign women, they're going to bring their gods with you, with them. They are going to distract you and you're not going to be able to serve me with all of your heart. It just will not happen. Well, what happened is that Ezra then saw that all these people were coming back. They were all coming back to Israel. And what they were bringing were all of their different wives. In verse 3, When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled hair out from my head and my beard, and sat utterly shocked. Now, folks, Again, um, we don't get all this. All right? Say, oh, come on, man. It's like Jethro married someone. What, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. God had a principle. It was black and white. Ezra knew God's word, knew what the ramifications were, understood that this disobedience was not a casual disobedience. It wasn't a slap on the hand. He saw multitude after multitude of people coming in. The culture had absolutely influenced. They were not listening to God's word at all. And the guy literally made a scene. Made a scene. You know what? I uh, took... Becca and Joey to school today riding my bike. Now it's their second day of school 
and they were pretty excited. And when I ride my bike, I roll up my right um, pants leg because otherwise it gets goofy. Well, I want you to know something. I walked in the garage today, and Becca looked at me, looked at my right leg, and basically said, I am not driving my bike with you to school this way. I said, dude, you are in third grade, and your grandpa is cool. I said that exactly just like that. And she said, Gramps, can you put your leg down, your pants leg down? You know, she was appalled at her grandfather. Now, she didn't sit down and rip her hair out or do any of those things. But what I can say is Ezra had a different respect. I'm trying to, it was different. Everybody else was, okay, I made a mistake. Okay, there wasn't such a big deal. But to Ezra said, do, do you understand what's happening? And then look at this. Look at the words. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel. You know that word trembled. And I just want to say, this is not guilt 101, and I'm just going to rip on you and rip on me for 30 minutes and say how, how we don't treat God's word well. It's probably true, but I'm not going to go there. What I'm going to say is this. When was the literal time that any of us in this room trembled at God's Word. Most of us are casual. Most of us justify. Most of us say, oh, well, this doesn't really mean this, right? Or, hey, I'm obeying 90% of this, God. Come on, look at my pagan neighbors. Or look at my pagan pastor. Or look at my, whatever you want to say, you know, we compare. Somehow Ezra had different perspective because he studied and he knew God's word and he trembled at his words. I got to tell you, when I read this, my prayer was very simple. God, I want to tremble at your word more than I do today. That's what I want to do. I want to tremble at your word. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be some religious guy. I just want to tremble. And then look at, came with me and sat with me because of this outrage. I mean, listen to the words. Committed by the return exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of evening sacrifice. And then you can read his prayer. We don't have time to read his prayer. It's unbelievable. And he goes on. Then look at verse, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 10. Chapter 10 is all happening. While Ezra prayed and made this confession literally for the people, and I'm not even sure how you confess for people. I've started to pray like this a little bit, but I don't understand it. Okay? It's not again that I am some great religious person or you are, but, but there's something about confessing sin and recognizing sin. You may have even hear me pray sometimes this way on Sunday mornings as I model prayer, as I confess sin for our congregation. Now again, don't ask me how this all works. I don't know how this whole thing works. I don't. But here it is. Ezra prayed and made his confession weeping 
and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God. A very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. I think they're weeping for a few reasons. First of all, if they really understood what God's word has to say, they're going to divorce their wives and and get rid of their children. Say, Rick, this is wrong, isn't it? (laughs) How do we do this? This is not right. Okay, isn't there love or compassion or kindness? You know, but look at verse 3. Now let us make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and to send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given by you and by the others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. I'm not saying this is a cultural principle right now. I'm not saying that we better all do this at, at this exact moment. But what I am saying is that this was something so offensive to God. Ezra understood it. And in spite of what it meant culturally, he shared this. And there was weeping at their sin. Weeping. Men, women, and children. Alright, let's jump to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah, again, a contemporary. Same thing, he came a little bit later. And what he was, he had one of the highest and most cushy positions in all the world. It's called the cupbearer. Now, literally, what you would do for the king, because people would want to kill the king, a cupbearer would literally drink the wine and taste the food. The king's wine and the king's food. Dude, did he have it made? Okay. And then, if he lived, the king would eat and drink the food. Okay. So, they ate together, they talked together, they were buddies. The Bible even says Nehemiah was a very cheerful fellow. He was happy-go-lucky, but he also was a Jew. He also was a Jew. And what happened, really, if you read through Nehemiah, Nehemiah is an unbelievable book of leadership. It's an unbelievable book of, of listening to God. It's how enemies come around and try to discourage you. But Nehemiah is a great leader because he trusts God and he encourages his people. So what happens is that an unbelievable thing happens all these people, priests and jewelry makers and all these folks that just came back, they aren't builders, okay, but they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, which again was a big deal in that day because it was kind of a protection. So now the temple was being rebuilt and the wall was being rebuilt. Israel was starting to get their dignity back. But if you look at, again, you don't have to read the whole book to to put it in perspective. The wall gets finished in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, this is so cool, chapter 8 and 9. Bear with me on this one. In October of the year when this finished, which was actually uh, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. All right? Like, that makes any difference to you. But in October of that year, all right, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, okay, everyone went back, wall was up, all the assemble or all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square right outside the water gate. Okay? Verse um, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And folks, although the book of the law is considered the first five books, almost every um, scholar or commentary will say it's the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, 
So you can just kind of put that in perspective. And the reason I say that too is because Deuteronomy, as many of you know, is just about my favorite book. And, and it just depends on, on the day that I talk about it. Okay? And we're going to get into Deuteronomy. Can't wait. It's just a few more lines down. Okay? But it's Moses' last message. All right? And he pours his heart out. But anyway, um, they bring out the book of Deuteronomy, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest... Now picture this, okay? Temples rebuilt, the city's starting to thrive, everyone's back, the walls are out, the normal life is starting to kick in, in this, okay? People are getting a little excited. On October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the kids old enough to understand. Now, I'll just put it in perspective, probably four or five years old, all right? Somewhere in that, in that area. All right. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Now again, put it in perspective. There's no internet. They do not have Bibles. This is very, very unique. The word of God was really, in the Old Testament times, was an oral tradition for the most part. Very few people had the Word of God. So what they would do, and again, you wonder, even in Luke, when Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes into the synagogue, and we don't understand all the Jewish stuff, but the reason that people went to synagogue for the most part was to hear God's Word, because nobody had God's Word. So people would come into synagogue, and they would open up the scrolls, so on. And that's where Jesus in Luke chapter 4 opened up Isaiah and read and predicted that he was the Messiah. And if you understand that history, you say, well, of course, nobody has the scroll of Isaiah at home. You know, they hear all this stuff over and over and over again. That's why Moses and everyone else says, hey, talk about this all the time. Talk about Because in this culture, if you didn't talk about it, if you didn't hear this, you would not understand what God's Word had to say. Alright? So some of these texts are going to seem so foreign to us. But here it is. God's Word is a priority. I'm having all the men and the women. They're going to all come from early morning to noon. Now you figure that out. Okay? They were hearing God's Word. Read aloud. Okay? Ezra the scribe stood on this high wooden platform for this occasion. Okay? Look at verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. I'm even trying. They don't have a megaphone. They don't have any of that stuff. Okay? The people are quiet. They're listening. They, they want to get every word that's going on. All right? When they saw him Open the book. Unroll the scroll. Look what happened. They all rose to their feet. Do you realize that one of the major complaints we have in our church is that sometimes we stand too long? Okay. But I also want you to know that if you're going to a Beatles concert, excuse me, a Cubs game, all right, and you wanted to stand in line and you want... Oh, I bet, I bet you could do that. I bet you could. You know? 
But you know what? We just sang three songs, and I'm getting pretty tired. So if you don't mind, let's sit down. You know? And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying our culture is really different. When God's word was opened, and there are still traditions that do this, people stand. Because this is the almighty, the holy word of God. Okay? Then Ezra, verse 6, praised the Lord. I don't know if he sang or if he just kind of praised the Lord, chanted. Uh, and all the people chanted. Oh, there it is, chanted. Amen, amen. They lifted their hands and they bowed down. They worshiped the Lord and their faces to the earth. Do you realize that so much of our worship happens in conjunction with the Word of God? All right? I mean, there's plenty of times when worship has happened over the years just as worship. But almost worship always happens after a response of God's Word. You're just overwhelmed with what you've heard. You just bow down. The king has just spoken. Oh my word, God, you are almighty. You are wonderful. You are amazing. God, you're amazing. And then look what happened. Verse 7. This is a perfect way to run a church. I'm telling you. The Levites, okay, first of all, Ezra did the preaching, or actually, I'm just letting you know, all he did was read the scripture. There was no stories. There was no illustrations. And I can tell you that the Puritans basically learned from this. Okay, Then they went off once Jonathan Edwards came to America and some other types of things. you know. But realistically, there was a movement you know, of let's make God's Word more palatable. We can't just read God's Word, so let's do sermons. I'm not against sermons. I'm a pastor. Okay, I teach. You know, that's a good thing. But what I'm saying is, is that oftentimes we do what the culture says. And as a result, we miss out, I think, the, the most of the impact that we need to get. Now, I'm not saying let's go back to on Sundays, let's just read the Bible. I'm not. But what I am saying is this is that as you go through the scriptures, there isn't always, you know, as we're going to find out, people want to be entertained. And the more entertaining you are, the greater your church, or the more numbers that you have, or the more young people that come out. And you can just fill in the blanks. Do I think we need to have an electric guitar for worship? I do. Am I saying that that has to be entertainment? No. But I think, again, what happened, here it is, they're down. So the Levites, verse 7, and they name them all, and I'm not going to, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. Here's what happened. Ezra's up there, reads all the way through Deuteronomy. Well, there's some people that don't get it. I get it. So now the Levites, and there's quite a few of them, they go out in all the crowds and they reteach all the book of Deuteronomy to people right there in the smaller groups. This is kind of cool, all right? They read from the book of the law and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So here it is. This is an all-day thing so far, folks, okay? Starting early in the morning... Hearing God's word, then, I, I don't know if they broke for lunch or what, you know. But 
But again, the Levites are going out and they're starting to instruct and making sure they understand. And then what happened, verse 9, look at this. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting to the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. What had happened is this, guys, and you can read through this. Everybody started crying. They were repenting. They were overwhelmed with their sin. They were responding to God. But you know what these leaders said? Hey, stop, time out. This is a day for rejoicing. No more crying about whatever you're crying about. I don't get that. It seemed like it would be a good thing to cry about this stuff. But they're saying, no, right now, this is, a, this is a big deal. This is the day we celebrate who God is. And if you look at the end of verse 12, celebrate with great joy because we have heard God's word and understood it. For so long they didn't have God's word. Over 400 years here. And it was discovered. It was read. Unbelievable. And so the joy was not even, it wasn't about conviction. It's, hey, we have God's word here. Isn't that cool? Let's have a party. Now, I'm not so sure, again, any, any of us have ever said, let's have a party. We have God's word. Now, I'm not saying that's sarcastic. I'm just saying this was unbelievable. This was so important. This is worth having a party. Now, wait, we're going to keep going. Look at verse 13. On October 9th, this is the next day, all right, the very next day. They start reading on the 8th, on 9th. The family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and the Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail. They had just heard it yesterday. They had greater detail given to them by the Levites. And now the next day, they went to sleep, they got up. All the heads of the family, which in a Jew, you know, I hate to say this, but it's all the male headship at this moment, they met together and said, I want to be able to lead our families well. Can you help me understand this? I'm not getting it all. So there was a thirst. Alright? And as they studied the law, verse 14, they discovered that the Lord had commanded Moses should... Um, uh, through Moses, that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival beheld that month. And again, we don't get all this, but this was the Feast of Tabernacle. This was a seven-day time where they were going to reflect on God's faithfulness because they took him through the 40 years in the desert. So again, to us, that's not a big deal, but they're reading through this, and all of a sudden they go, you can see that advertisement, that V8 that V8 advertisement where there's a, a, a woman who's a, a trainer and this guy is doing his put or sit ups or whatever and she's asking you know what he ate and, and so on and, and basically didn't eat a V8 and she goes what's wrong with you that kind of a thing and this is what happened here it was a V8 moment for these guys and they're saying hey wait a minute we don't do this. We do not do this festival of uh, tents. What, what do we got to do? And so what happened is they said, we got to do it. God's word says it. We got to do it right now. Now, I don't know what plans they had. I don't know what the harvest is looking like. I don't know what any of that is. I don't even know if they have soccer practice at this moment. 
But the truth is this, is that God said, we got to obey right now. we got to obey right now. And look at verse 18. Ezra read from the book of the law on each of the seven days of the festival. So these guys have had the book of the law eight straight days. Read the book of the law. No illustrations. Read it. Read it. Read it. Over and over. They were hearing and they were responding. Now look at this. Chapter 9. October 31st is Halloween, but that's not that big of a deal at this moment. But on, on, a, uh, on the 31st, chapter 9, um, 15 days later, they read, confessed, and prayed. But look at this. The people assembled again. This time they fasted, dressed in burlap, sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all four foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors they remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of their lord their god was read to them aloud folks 15 days after they spent eight straight days just hearing the bible they go home they reassemble for halloween they read three hours um, the book of Deuteronomy. Then, for three more hours, they confess their sins and worship the Lord their God. Six hours. You say, this is the craziest thing that's ever happened. It might be. What I'm suggesting is that God's Word has a way to convict and to absolutely disrupt our lifestyles if we let it. You again can read the prayer of Ezra as you go through chapter 9. But let's go to verse, I mean, to chapter 13. Alright? Chapter 13. I'm going to fast forward. Again, I hope if anything else you can just read this book. But what happens is that Nehemiah goes back to his quiz job. All right, all this revival's happening. This is cool. He goes back to his cush job of drinking wine and eating all the king's food. Well, he returns back, and the scriptures aren't exactly clear, but it's at least 10 years, but probably 12 years. Okay? So there's about a 10 or 12. Now, when he left, there was great revival. When he left, there was weeping. When he left, the, the, the festivals were happening. When he left, the walls were rebuilt. The temple was functioning. This place was listening to God. Ten years later. Chapter 13. Oh, my word. And, and I'm just going to give you the uh, um, cliff note version here. Alright? First of all, there are a bunch of foreigners, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but they were living and active inside the temple. A foreigner just basically means it's someone that is not a God-fear. It can also be someone from a different country, but basically they were just kind of letting anybody in at this moment. And it was very clear, if you went into the temple, you needed to be a God-fearer. Alright? This was not a church kind of a scenario where you're inviting people in. It was a completely different situation back in the Old Testament. All right? But what happened? Foreigners were living in the area, and this was anathema. 
Secondly, I like this part. The Levites did not receive any salary. All right. And I'm not saying like stocks. I'm, I'm saying like they weren't provided for. God's specific people who were working in the temple, they were supposed to be given money and food so that they might be able to serve God full time. Well, what happened? The people stopped stop giving. They stopped obeying. And so the Levites all had to go out and start working. Okay? And the bottom line is, goes, what's going on? How come you're not obeying God in this whole thing? Then he said, the Sabbath breakers. Within ten years, the Sabbath was holy. Then people are selling on the Sabbath, and there is no Sabbath being observed. And lastly, the old foreign wives. Again, you know, this whole foreign wife thing, man, I I tell you. And so what happened is that Nehemiah just broke down. He just looked at this. He was unbelievable. He says, why aren't you obeying anymore? Why have in ten years you have forgotten what God's word has to say? You know what this kind of tells me? This tells me this. First of all, that it is unbelievable. Believable how quickly we can lose perspective without God's Word. Okay? It's just unbelievable. It can happen in a week. It can happen in two weeks. It can happen in two years. Honestly, if you don't pick up God's Word for ten years, oh my word. Where is your strength? Where is your perspective? Where is the direction that, that you need every single day? You know, we've, we've got a lot to cover, as you can see, and I have five more minutes. <laughs> um, but what I would like to do, can you turn to Psalm 19 with me? I, I would like to, to leave, at least, on a little bit more positive um, note at this moment. But in Psalm 19, I love Psalm 19 because the first half of the chapter talks about how God reveals Himself in nature. And you guys know how much I enjoy going to camp and how much I enjoy being out in the woods and and how much I enjoy just understanding all that God has made. It's just overwhelming. But you know what? The last part of Psalm 19 talks about God's Word. So God reveals Himself unbelievably in all of nature, in the oceans, in the atmosphere, all in the mountains, in the valleys, in, in the beautiful forests. But look what God has to say, starting in verse 7. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. You know what? As I read through these these last few months, I just stopped. How does God's word revive my soul? How does it give me life again? All right. And this degrees the decree... I never say that word. The statues. Thank you. <laughs> of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise, the, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Verse eleven. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. Verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
Let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Honestly, I don't think anyone can read Psalm 119 enough. It is the longest chapter of the longest book. And there are 170-something verses, 76, I think, 176 verses. And I just want you to know, the Word of God is mentioned in all but two of those verses. So if you want an assignment, figure out which two. All right? That would be great. But you know what I'd like to do? I would just like to read through 119 in the last few minutes that we have. Not the whole thing, don't worry. But the highlights that I have in yellow. And listen to what God's Word has to say. Verse 9. How can a young man stay pure? By obeying your Word. You could take every one of these verses and just think about them. You want to stay pure? Obey God's Word. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 30, I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. I cling to your laws. Lord, don't put me to shame. I will pursue your commands. I see some very action here. This is not, I'm going to lay around and maybe every Sunday or once in a while I'll come out, I'll hear God's word, and hopefully it'll make a difference in my life. I don't see that anywhere. Start looking at verse 33. Teach me your decrees, O Lord, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for it is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise. Made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Verse 45, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Wow, that just goes against us, doesn't it? If we're going to obey God's commandments, how do we experience freedom? But that is the only way... Verse 56, this is how I spend my life, obeying your commands. Verse 63, I'm a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commands. Verse 74, may all who fear you find in me a cause for joy, for I have put my hope in your word. Verse 90, your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. Verse 93, I will never forget your commands, and for by them you give me life. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Who wouldn't want light? I mean, this is the craziest thing in the world. There's an anyone I know especially on a dark night, you know, out of a tent or whatever, saying, I don't need light. What do you mean you don't need light? I don't need light. I can, I can handle this. 
That's the craziest thing. I don't need light for life. I don't need any light to light my path. I, I can just do this. Folks, that is the most ridiculous thing in the whole world. And yet, we will. I don't need light. <laughs> I don't need it. Uh, verse 114. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Verse 118. But you have rejected all those who stray from your decrees. They are only fooling themselves. Verse 130. The teaching of your word gives light. So even the simple can understand. Listen to verse 131. I pant with expectation. I pant. With expectation, longing for your commands. Verse 162, we're almost there. I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. Honestly, I just picture myself. If I could find a treasure, a great treasure, a great treasure. Treasure worth a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars. Oh my word. Everyone would know about it. I'd let you know. I'd even share it with you. Okay? That would be fun. Being generous. You know, party for everyone. $10,000 if you come out. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. People will come. You know? But the bottom line is, hey, I rejoice in your word. I rejoice in your word. You know, we're going to spend, the next, next Tuesday, we meet to pray. And the Tuesday after that, we're going to continue our second Timothy study, which technically at this moment has just become a study of 